Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and today we're talking about embryo adoption. My guest is a doula and childbirth educator. She discovered her passion for childbirth after witnessing the beautiful birth of her niece just over 10 years ago. She is not at all shy about being a 40-year-old virgin with a twist. She's currently 28 weeks pregnant through embryo adoption. I have so many questions. Lynette Weaver, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I'm inspired by you, and you have this great energy, and you're doing this interesting thing that uh, most people have never heard of. You know, there's a lot of roads to parenthood today, and one of the paths less talked about is embryo adoption, and that's what we'll be talking about today. But first, a few minutes of perspective. I found that a lot of people become fascinated with pregnancy and birth after experiencing it themselves or with a partner, and that may lead them to pursue a career in birth work. All of the options in birth work are tough jobs, and nobody really goes into it or at least stays in it for the money. Oftentimes, people are curious about what in life led me to become a male doula, which is a whole other story. And I always wonder about passionate doulas who I meet that don't have children themselves. Sometimes they're so driven and spirited, I wonder where that energy comes from. So where are you from? What's your background? And how did you get into birth work? Yeah, so I am somebody who kind of stumbled into it. I am uh, originally from Bakersfield. So not too far away from L.A., but I've been here for the past uh, 11 years. Um, and I, like you mentioned a second ago, I was at uh, the birth of my niece. And I, it kind of was – it was an accident that I was in the room. I wasn't supposed to be in there, but her um, birth sped up really quickly while everybody was at lunch. Oh. And so we had to like very frantically get my brother back in the room and the other moms, both moms didn't quite make it in time. Oh, was um, everybody supposed to be in there for the birth? Well, so my mom and, and then my sister-in-law's mom uh -huh. and my brother and that hospital, that particular hospital said, you know, three people max. Mass? Okay. So I was in there, had to call my brother. And then by the time everybody got there, I had, you know, made nice with the nurses and kind of got permission to <laughs> be person. a fly yeah. on the wall and be that fourth person. Oh. So after witnessing the birth, it was like 
the most amazing thing I had ever seen and I couldn't get over it. And my mom is actually not a trained doula, but everyone in her world has invited her to be at their birth because she's very calm and nurturing. And so she's probably been at somewhere between 10 and 15 births. So I got to watch and see how she kind of cared for my sister-in-law in in the process. Um, And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I didn't know that a doula existed. Um, But after witnessing as a profession, yeah, yeah, because this was, you know, almost 11 years ago. Um, Now it's much more prominent. But at that point, I I hadn't even heard of a doula. And so I had a friend that was also pregnant. And I apparently I couldn't shut up about, you know, witnessing this birth. And she was like, "Uh, do you want to come when I have my baby? And so I, I got invited to her birth. And her mom and her husband were actually there as well. But they were kind of you know, freaked out and backed into a corner. Um, And I just kind of like stepped into that role and just kind of took care of her and copied some of the things that I saw my mom do when my sister-in-law was in labor. And after that experience, she actually was the one who said, you know, you actually are kind of gifted at this. You should do this for people. And I was like, just invite myself to their births. (laughs) Um, And then very shortly after that, I met two women who were doulas. And then I started asking, you know, all the questions. Well, what does that mean? And how do you get clients? And what's your training? And um, originally, I just pursued the education because I was fascinated and I wanted to know more. So I started the doula um, certification program through DONA. because the two doulas that I had met, that was, you know, that was the organization that they went through. And so I just, you know, copied what they did. And um, I, uh, So Donor International is one of the certifying agencies. Correct. Uh, for doulas. And there's a few different ones. And they have a lot of similarities and some differences between them. You chose Dona. I did. Yeah. What were you, just out of curiosity, what, where was life leading you before that accidental first birth that you yeah. witnessed? Yeah. So I, I actually was an elementary school teacher. Oh. Um, I have, I, I've, I've, I'm one of those people that has had kind of several careers in my short life. Already. Um, already. Um, but even when I started the teaching credential program, I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do. So I, I moved forward to become an elementary school teacher, and I I enjoyed it, but I wasn't convinced that that's where I was going to be long term. So everything I've done has kind of revolved around education in one aspect or another, which is why, which is also what led me into being a childbirth educator because I love the teaching, teaching. aspect of oh, it. Well, that's yeah, a, that's a good match for you yeah. then. Yeah. Um, and what about so? Being a doula professionally is different than just kind of helping out a friend. Yeah. And in the beginning, I wasn't sure if I could kind of do that for, you know, an essential stranger. And Mm -hmm. so in the beginning, as I pursued it, I never thought that I would make a career of it. I thought, oh, I just want to be really educated and I want to do this for friends and family. And um, but what ended up happening was once I had supported, you know, friends, then they refer their friends. And I started to, you know, get inquiries from people that I I didn't know. And then actually what I found is once I did the education part, the prenatal visits, you know, as a doula, you ask people really personal questions and you get to know, you know, what are your greatest fears? And 
how's your relationship and your support person and what's your relationship with your mother-in-law mm. and your mom and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, not me. So I found that by the time, even if it was a stranger in the beginning. That, you're, n- you're not strangers yeah, at all by the time Yeah, and then you I had, you know, I really cared about them or I do, you know, really care about my clients at that point. And then it just became a non-issue. I, I, I knew that, oh, I, c- I can do this for people because there's that you know, that pre-getting-to-know-you um, building of relationship. Do sometimes people look for in a doula for someone who's already been through it? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think everybody has, you know, different opinions. And, uh, you know, a friend asked me that one time and then said, well, I guess it's kind of like saying I wouldn't go to, a, you know, an oncologist unless they've also had cancer. Oh, yeah, that's a good so point. So I was like, oh, that's a great that's a great way to look at it. But I completely understand if somebody wants, you know, a doula that's that's been there and done that. And so I'm not offended by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have not, you know, had it, I haven't run into any real, you know, personal issues with that. Um, watching people go through the process um, time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. At what point did you start thinking, I want to do this? Well, you know, I I'm. I think I've wanted to be a mom since I was about nine years old. Oh, wow. Um, I have an older sister, younger brother, and then my mom is <laughs> well, you're one. you're the middle. I'm the middle. Oh. Um, my mom is one of six kids, and so I have like 18 cousins on one side of the family. And so, and my mom's the oldest. So every year as I was growing up, there was a new baby, and that's where I spent all my time. Where's the new baby? Give them to me. Oh, you just loved being um, around the babies. Loved babies and started babysitting from a very young age as well. Um, so I've always had that like maternal instinct and always wanted to be a mom. So I don't know that then attending births made it you know, all that more stronger. of a desire for me. Yeah. It's always been it was, pretty strong for you. Yeah, absolutely. What was your vision for, did you have a vision on how or when? Oh, of course. I was going to be married by the time I was like 22 and I was going to have, you know, a, a handful of children and that's kind of what my life was going to look like. And it, it, it hasn't actually turned out that way. Mm-hmm. So then over the years, you know, I, I revised. It was like, okay, now it's the five-year plan and <laughs> by yeah. 25 and then by 30 and then here I am, it's 40. It sounds like my uh, retirement fund. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's not something that I necessarily had had, you know, ultimate control over. Um, And so, you know, I've just made adjustments along the way. But, you know, I would say that probably 10 years ago, um, I really started feeling the desire um, to adopt. And there's some adoption in my family as well. My sister has adopted my two adorable nephews since Mm. from birth. Um, And you know, so I was about 30 when I started thinking that, you know, adoption was was a potential option for me as well. Single adoption? Yeah. You know, I've I've explored the option several times, you know, over the course of the 10 years. Um, I was still single at 30. And so um, I, I considered it. I was still teaching elementary school at the time. And um, I actually initially went through the um, certification process to do foster to adopt. 
Um, and I actually completed that process. And right at the same time, so maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago when the economy took a dive, um, I got laid off of my teaching job right oh, wow. when I finished that oh, certification. No. So I had to put it on hold. I, I did end up getting a job very quickly, but it was the circumstances changed where I had quite a commute and was gone for 12 hours a day. Oh, wow. So then um, over the last, you know, 10 years, I have every couple of years it kind of came up again like, oh, is it time? Um, do, is, do my circumstances fit? Um, I'm still I'm still single, mm-hmm. but does, is that going to be the thing that's going to prevent me from moving forward? Do I want to wait for a spouse? Um, so those are things that I've had to kind of mull over over the years as I've um, thought about it. Who, uh, out of curiosity, who's the ideal partner? <laughs> or are you are you going to try and set me Maybe. up? Maybe <laughs> you never know. We have a large listening audience, mostly pregnant, but who knows? <laughs> Um, that's also changed over the years. You know, sometimes you're super specific about, okay, here's my list of the 28, 30, 40, 50 things that I want. And then sometimes out of, you know, you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're like, just somebody that's single and my age. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I definitely have some, you know, some some things that are important to me um, as far as like, you know, kindness and morals and values. and What? Really, somebody that can um, that I can laugh with, and mm-hmm. then obviously at this point, somebody that you know wants to be a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm now a big the, the pizza has been so. ordered, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that won't be really an option yeah. uh, any longer. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess the lucky one is still out there somewhere for you. No, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're just—I think you're an amazing person, like just a great soul. That even the things that you're looking for, someone who's kind and wants to laugh and. Uh, you know, yeah, it's just a big heart. I mean, you're thank you're just you. a big heart to me. Aw, thank you. Um, so, at what point did you 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 were looking at adoption? Yeah. Because your goal was motherhood. Correct. At that point, you kind of shifted your vision to like motherhood now. Yeah. And then at the right time, partnerhood. Correct, and and not only motherhood, but I I feel like. Watching my sister go through the adoption process and then learning more about that, and just I've always had a heart for for children and children in need, and um, so I really, you know, as much as I also wanted biological children, I knew at some point in my life adoption was going to be part of my journey. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, now I've exhausted all the possibilities, and so now this. This was always um, in your this, sights. This has always been kind of, you know, a call or something that my heart has been drawn toward. Um, and what? Because now you're not doing adoption. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you shift gears away from that? Well, honestly, you know, like I said, every couple of years I would visit the, you know, is it time for me to adopt? Um, and uh, a little over two years ago, I had um, a, a dear friend who she and her family had gone through IVF um, and they have several children and they're in a place where they have remaining frozen embryos. Um, and she actually came across an organization um, called Snowflakes um, that does embryo adoptions. And so, you know, that's something that, that they were considering looking into on their end. But when I heard about that, I was like, wait, what? T- tell me more about this this kind of adoption. Um, and so I just started, you know, researching more about snowflakes and then figuring out, you know, what is embryo adoption and 
what's the need there? Um, and then learning that, I mean, obviously there are a lot more families um, that are going through fertility treatments and this is becoming actually a real need. There's um, There's a lot close of embryos to in a the million frozen wow. embryos in the U.S. alone wow. right now, um, and so there are actually a lot of families that have you know you know gone through IVF. They have these embryos. Now they have as many children as they feel like they'd like to have, and now they have they're faced with this decision. What you know, do we do with the what embryos? What do I do? What are the options for what to do? Well, there are several options, and I and I it seems to kind of force people to you know, determine, you know, where do I, where do I believe that life begins? Uh What do I, what do I do here? So you can keep them frozen. Um, It's pretty expensive. Indefinitely. Um, You can, you can donate them to research. Um, You can, you can actually do embryo donation as well. For me, the adoption process was an important part of it. Um, So that's, you know, that's an option for families that want to be involved in, Choosing the family and choosing the placing family. Okay, so donation means you don't find out who you can do anonymous donation I as see. well. Yeah, and we'll talk about how adoption is quite a bit different than that. Yes, shortly. Yeah, and then you can also just you know let them thaw and let them go, and so you have to think about you know what are all of the choices and what's best for you and your family. Yeah, I think there's a lot, something that people sometimes don't even think about getting into their fertility treatments. They're so focused on having the baby. But yeah. um, essentially what we're doing is taking a sperm and an egg, mm-hmm. and we remove both of them from the body and put them together. Yep. And we make an embryo. Yeah. It, it grows, and if it grows to a blastocyst, it grows into a ball of cells that eventually becomes an embryo that you can freeze. Yep. And then um, they stay preserved while frozen, and at the time that, that that couple is ready to have or that individual is ready to have uh, a pregnancy, they mm-hmm. take it out and they they place it in her body. Right. Um, and the hope is that it will take and a pregnancy will ensue and she'll have a baby. But sometimes you make 10, 12, 15 embryos yeah. and only end up using two or three or more or less. But mm-hmm. then you have all these other embryos to consider. So right. you came across the option for embryo adoption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, did your friends end up doing embryo adoption? Uh, they are. They're still on the fence, so they're uh-huh. they're considering. Yeah, and the, because they're in, they're they're frozen. You don't really have to decide too quickly. But yeah, yeah, they, you have time for sure. Had you thought about um, insemination at any point? You know, I mean, it had crossed my mind, but I didn't ever really have a. You know, like an internal piece about that in moving forward. Now, I'm not saying I would never do it, but for me, um, adoption has always been the thing. So then when this became adoption with actually being able to carry an adopted child, that was that was like this, this aha moment of, oh, my gosh, this is the path for me because now I can not only meet a need – you know, um, be the answer to a family's prayers in in being able to place their embryos into a family, mm-hmm. um, but then also be able to start caring for that child in utero and then experience pregnancy as well. So that's something that, that you process. wanted. You want to have the pregnancy oh, and absolutely. the birth. Yeah. Um, and so there's a value there for you. With mm-hmm. insemination, it's, a, it's usually a random sperm donor. Um, sometimes a sometimes known, a known, donor, a known yeah. donor, 
but you were eggs. So the genetically, yeah. the baby would be more like you. And some people place more or less value on that, for mm-hmm. example. For you, that wasn't, it sounds like, wasn't such a, a priority. It wasn't necessarily. Um, you know, I, I, I still have, desi- there's desire there to have a, a genetically biological child. But for me at this point, it honestly feels no different. Mm-hmm. Um, I Did you, Have you frozen eggs? I haven't. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't done any other um, things to preserve my own fertility. And now I'm 40, so I, you know, I'm still young-ish. Yeah, um, well, but there's I know still that, some window. It's just yeah. less window than before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, I want to continue the conversation with you and find out more about the process. What sure. is embryo adoption and what, what are the different steps involved in doing it? Mm-hmm. But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Join us right here in a minute with Lynette Weaver on the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and we're continuing our fascinating discussion about embryo adoption with uh, Lynette Weaver, who luckily is not shy at all. <laughs> I mean, because these would be hard questions, some of them to, to discuss and ask mm-hmm. if um, if somebody was more closed than you are. And I love that you're willing to share. Yeah. Um, so tell me about embryo adoption, because you talked about donation, and adoption is a totally different process. Yeah. Yeah, so embryo adoption for the placing family, so the families that have gone through the IVF process and they have, you know, embryos to place, um, this particular organization, and I, you know, it's the only one that I've worked with, so I don't know how different others are, but they treat it very similarly to any other traditional adoption. So the agency actually does, you know, um, international adoptions, they do traditional adoptions, they do foster to adopt, and then their snowflakes division is the where they work with, with Embryo. embryos. Oh, interesting. So this gives the fam- the placing families the opportunity to be involved in the matching phase and in the selection process, and they can make some decisions about what kind of family they want to place their embryos into. Um, they can make, you know, all sorts of specifications. So, you know, I had to be 
matched with a family that was obviously open to a single mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but these families, it very gives cool single mom, a very very cool <laughs> single mom. Um, but it gives them the option to play a part, and then there's also the option of some sort of open communication, which you know we can get into that a little bit later too, if. Oh, they can choose to be in communication or not to be in communication? Correct. Okay. Yeah, and this particular agency really encourages some level of openness. Okay. um, But, you know, there are so many varying degrees of what that looks like. So from your perspective, the wanting to adopt an embryo, Mm -hmm. how does the process start for you? So for me, at the beginning, I had to initially get – my own fertility checked out. So I had to find a fertility specialist and just make sure that I didn't have any contraindications to pregnancy. So not necessarily the ability to conceive, but yeah. the ability to carry, to carry, healthily carry a baby to term and deliver. Yeah. So with, you know, being geriatric in my uh, uh-huh. in my years. In, um, maternally geriatric. Maternally uh-huh. geriatric. Um, it didn't matter what my eggs or my ovaries look like. It was just a matter of how's the uterus. And um, so checking that out to make sure that I, there's nothing that is a contraindication. Does that mean uh, like an ultrasound, sonohistogram? Yeah. So I did, uh, I had to have a sonohistogram ultrasound. Actually, they ended up finding a small polyp inside my uterus. And so then I had to have a minor procedure to get that removed. Yep. Um, and then they repeated the sauna histogram, and then he signed off. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then you once you turn that into the agency, then you're cleared to then start the process. Presumably, what they're trying to do is avoid wasting an embryo, or putting I would say a, so. And for lack of a better term, putting yeah. an embryo in an environment where it's not likely to thrive. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different factors, and you don't know until you actually move forward through the process. But if there was something, you know, glaringly obvious in the beginning. Um, then you're then you're not necessarily a good candidate for an embryo adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you get the sign off from your doctor, um, then you start very similarly to a, a, a traditional adoption. Um, I had to go through the home study process. Um, there's education, so you know I had to watch some online classes. I had to do a lot of paperwork, background checks, fingerprinting. Wow! Um, I was assigned a social worker that came and did a home visit. No kidding. Um, it was a little less than um, you know when I had gone through the the county to do the foster care. Mm-hmm. They did many more home visits and things like that. They do kind of a little abbreviated version. But if they're still doing, doing due diligence. But they're doing their part. Baby exactly. coming into a good environment. Yes. So that part, you know, is up to you how slowly or quickly you move through that. It's it's just how quickly can you get all the appointments that you need and get your paperwork done and watch the classes and and all of that. Once you finish that initial phase, then you move into the kind of pre-matching phase where you also put together a family profile. So I had to write, you know, my autobiography and why am I doing this and include family photos and um, just lots of information so that the that placing the families placing family get will to look see? at. Oh, yeah. interesting. So they can sort of choose where they send their embryo. Yes, exactly. Now, they don't, you know, put 10 profiles in front of them and say, which one do you want? I see. There's a, there's a very extensive um, question and answer on preferences. Sort of um, like an eHarmony before you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So they wouldn't match you or show your profile to a family that you had different preferences. So they do the matching on both sides. And then what they do is they put a 
profile in front of the placing family and they have two weeks to look at it and say yes or no Mm -hmm. to that family. Oh, very interesting. Okay. And then once that family, once they say yes, so if somebody said yes to me, then I in turn get to see their profile. And so that consists of typically kind of their fertility journey, why they're choosing adoption, any children that they have from the same batch of embryos or different. Um, They can choose to include family photos, um, it, and then information about their health background. Um, That's really so sort of it's interesting. It's very thorough. Because they're genetic siblings, right? So you yeah. sort of get to see what your kid's probably going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. You get to, a, you get a, a little I mean, bit of an idea. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, and you can be as specific as you want as far as even like faith and race. And I was I was pretty open. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be kind of cool if I, you know, I'm this Caucasian girl with, you know, light hair and light eyes. I thought it'd be kind of cool to birth like an African-American child. I was totally open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, they said that 90% of the families that are a, going through the fertility treatments, and then B, choosing adoption are Caucasian. Oh, really? And so they said, you know, if you're not another ethnicity, the chances of you being matched, matched with a family with are very, very slim. slim. I see. So, you know, my child will have blonde hair and blue eyes, essentially. Hmm. Which I'm okay with that, too. I was open to really any possibility. Yeah. So. It's interesting. I mean, the whole process is really fascinating. So you now match, like they say, we're okay with this person. We like this person being yeah. the, the adopting. Mm-hmm. The adopting family. So there's the family. placing family and then the adopting family. Um, mm-hmm. And then you say, I, you know, I like that profile. So yep. we're a match. Correct. So then at that point, you move into the paperwork processing phase and the agency handles that as well. Now, this is where it gets a little bit um, interesting because – Embryos are not considered life by the powers that legal be. standards. Exactly. Yeah. So, in the legal paperwork processing, it's actually a transition of property ownership. Oh wow! And so, at that's the, cold. At the end of the paperwork process, when both families, you know, sign the documents, I I essentially owned. The embryos. the embryos. And at that point, adoption is final. Oh, wow. So there won't have to be any, um, like a traditional adoption, there won't be like a court hearing or anything like that after the child is That's born. really interesting. So I'll be, you know, on the birth certificate and, you know, at this point. Like you could have been adopting a car. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of steps. Yeah. So then once that is complete, then you enter the shipping phase. And that is wherever the embryos are currently being stored. So the family could be, you know, in another state or another city or usually at least a different fertility clinic. Okay. Um, so the agency handles the shipping of the embryos and gets them to your How do they ship clinic. them? Um, in like cryogenic uh, type Storage frozen, cases, frozen like dry ice. I I would imagine. I didn't ever see that part of it, so I don't know if it's you know your yeah. usual FedEx or yeah, right. <laughs> a special well, a special company. Yeah, they don't go too cheap on the shipping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's why they handle it. Yeah, that's they right. know how to take care of that. <laughs> hey Bob, would you drive this over? Um, yeah. So then, uh, shipping phase. So yeah. they ship it to a clinic where you're working with the doctors in that clinic. Exactly. Do you have to do anything to your body to get ready for like a lot of times like if you're going to surrogate or something like Mm -hmm. that we have to match up your cycle 
Yeah, it's very I mean, it's it's essentially like being a surrogate and keeping the baby. Mm-hmm. So it's yes, there are fertility meds that you have to do. Um so basically, once they have the arrival date of those the embryos, so my clinic knew when the embryos were going to arrive, then we could plan based on my cycle, we could start the, the process of getting me ready for the frozen embryo transfer. So it's about a month's worth of, um, you know, first they put you on birth control if you're not already on it because mm-hmm. um, they want to kind of control your cycle. Um, and then you start. It's an important distinction. It's not to prevent you from getting pregnant. Correct. In the meantime, it's because right. they literally want to calm everything down. Exactly. And they and from my understanding, that's that's very normal for even if I had gone through IVF myself. All and fertility it was, treatments, yeah. Then, and I was doing a frozen embryo transfer. That's that's the way that they, they, they typically Clear can. the playing field. Come mm-hmm. before the storm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so then you start um, medications and um, and the frozen embryo transfer part of it to, to try to conceive. So when your embryos arrive, uh, yeah. when your property arrives, um, <laughs> it's they're still frozen. They're still frozen. Is it one embryo or do they give you multiple embryos? Oh, that's a embryos? great question. So that's another thing that they take into consideration when they're matching you with a family. Some families may have one or two embryos. Some may have... 15. Right. So ideally, they like to keep them together. So if you say, so for me, for example, I, I said, you know, my desire would be one or two children. So they were only going to match me with a family that had two to maybe five embryos. Because not they, every embryo leads to a, a pregnancy and a birth. Correct. And so then, you know, then they become my responsibility. And actually, once I have had as many children as I would like to have, if I have remaining embryos, the agreement is that I have to actually return remaining embryos to, to the, the original, original family. family through the agency. So you can't uh, you can't become an adoptee, an adopting family now on the other side. Right. Although I would imagine that some families choose to work together since now there are genetic siblings in two different families. Right. So they like, yeah, makes sense that they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was I was matched with a family that had two embryos. Okay. Um, so there was one that was um, frozen at day five. Earlier, you mentioned you know they reached the blastocyst stage. Mm-hmm. So one was at day five, and the other one was at day six. Can I ask you before we continue? Yeah. All these phases sound like they involve professionals and and technology that is expensive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Doctors and lawyers and medical equipment and cryo shipping. Right. You know, so with the agency, I'm assuming you're going to ask me how much it Yeah, costs. what's okay. the cost yeah. of this? Then? Yeah, no problem. So with the agency, um, it was 8000 for the adoption process, and that included all of those steps up until the embryo transfer, so up through shipping. Okay. So they, they tell you up front, and you kind of pay in chunks as you move through. So it's like, oh, now you're entering the matching phase, so now another $2,000 is due, and now you're entering. But you know ahead of time that it's $8,000. But that doesn't include embryo transfer? Correct. And that doesn't include anything about pregnancy, birth? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot more fee there's beyond the 8000 mm-hmm. Before we get to the extra fee, yeah. how does that compare to adoption costs? So honestly... It sounds like it's a little less than a traditional adoption, but once you get to the end of it, it 
because you're also not guaranteed a pregnancy on your first try. So it depends on how many times you have to go through that. So um, if you don't have a pregnancy, then the 8,000 starts again? Not the whole 8,000. So say you, um, you know, you use all of the embryos that you were matched with and you didn't get pregnant. Um, to re-enter the matching phase, you don't start from square one. You start oh, from wow. the matching phase. It's like a It's another $2,000, and that covers matching, legal processing, and shipping again. 2000 2000 Okay. Yeah. So whereas a traditional adoption, you're, you're guaranteed a kid. Right. Because they're already here. So you have a little bit more knowledge ahead of time in a traditional adoption at what your costs are going to be. Mm-hmm. Although if you're doing an international, then there's the travel aspect, and I'm sure that varies right. quite they a bit Right, they can't just well. ship them over. Yeah. It's a whole different experience. Yeah. So you kind of go in having a wide range of where this could fall. What was the embryo transfer like? So you did birth control first. Did birth control first. For a month? And then... Um, well, uh, just, you Couple know, weeks. since I am kind of an open book, I, I have pretty painful periods in general. So I've been on the pill for a long time oh, to help okay. with that. So it already was. So it didn't require anything different. It just was a matter of like, oh, okay. And just then, waiting. Yeah. So just waiting. Um, and then once the, the embryos arrived, then they knew what day I could stop taking the pill. Um, then it involves, in the beginning, it's, it's estrogen shots. Um, once every three days, um, that and those they are do injections or that you do <laughs> that you that I am responsible for. Okay. Um, so with a partner, that's something the partner might do. Correct. And or if you're lucky like me, you have really good friends. Okay, they come over and do it. Is it intramuscular it. or int- or just subcutaneous? It's intramuscular. Oh wow. So, yeah, so it's not the... Like in the bum? It's, yeah, it has to okay. go in the bum, which is why it might be difficult to do, to do it, it on yourself. To do it on yourself, yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't already hard enough to give yourself a shot. <laughs> yes. You have to do it from behind. <laughs> totally. Okay. Yeah, so it's those shots every three days. You also start, you know, your prenatal vitamins before the, the process even starts. Wait, are those, those are estrogen or progesterone? That's del, del estrogen, so okay. estrogen shots in the beginning. Before the transfer. Before the transfer. About a week before the transfer, I also started um, progesterone, two different kinds, three times a day. Um, Injections, suppositories? Uh I had suppositories three times a day and then um, vaginal suppositories suppositories, and then um, actually lozenges under the tongue. Delish. Yeah. (laughs) Delicious, which is really fun when you have morning sickness. Oh. So, uh, but we can talk about that later. Because you have to keep doing doing it. it. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Why two different kinds? Just out of curiosity. That's a great question. I think the the it's a matter of how much your body can absorb. Um, so your your options are those really thick oil, painful, awful injections, or these two kinds. I see. combined. Okay. Um, Let's well, of two evils. <laughs> yeah, and that's what my uh, doctor preferred, and yeah. so um, so I, I guess I would prefer that as well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then the week before, you also do a steroid pack. It's one of those, you know, five pills one day and then mm-hmm. four, three, two, one leading up. Taper down. Um, to, you know, make sure there's no inflammation. And then uh, I mentioned the prenatal vitamins as well. So toward the end, 
it started, I mean, right before the, the transfer, it was like, it felt like a full-time job because mm-hmm. there were multiple things I was doing every multiple day. times a day. Yeah. And every three days was this. And then, you know, once the steroid got in there, it was like, okay, now wait, how, how many and when? So I had a very detailed schedule and calendar reminders and all of that. That's before you were even pregnant. <laughs> before I was even pregnant, yeah. And then what happens on transfer day? So on transfer day, um, I chose to do acupuncture as well. Okay. So I had a wonderful acupuncturist that met me at the office and did a session oh, right before. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then for the transfer, they um, – so actually for, for mine, I, I mentioned I had a day six embryo and a day five. So the plan was to just transfer one embryo for me. Um, I – I really wanted to, you know, being a single mom, I really wanted to reduce the risk of multiples, multiples mm. which, of course, you know, you can always have one that splits into two. You can have one that splits into yeah. <laughs> two, but if you put in two, you could have two that both split and totally. have quads. Yeah, um, so I just wanted to – what anything in my power to reduce that risk – um, and my fertility specialist was very comfortable with doing a, a singleton um, transfer. Okay. Um, so the plan was to thaw the day five embryo the day before the transfer, and then he likes to let it grow out one night okay. and then transfer it on what would be day, day six. six. Um, when I got there, he informed me that it that embryo actually did not survive overnight. Oh, so you couldn't even so. They, tr- they then thawed the day six embryo and did the transfer of that that one. Okay. So um, so I went from having two possibilities to then down to one. one. Um, and then, then it was done. It was like, okay, we did that transfer. And, and very quickly it was like, oh, my goodness, both of my chances oh, in one day. Yeah. So th- what, what happens during the actual transfer? How do they get it in? So for the actual transfer, they use a small catheter and they thread it through the cervix. So thankfully, I had I, he was able to get through my cervix and they they check that ahead of time. So if I if he wasn't, then they would have had to do something additional and dilate the cervix. Oh, okay. So it's a very small catheter that they put straight into the uterus. And once they get it into the, the top part of the uterus, then they call the, the embryology department. And then they bring the embryo in and they just put it through the tube and you watch right it on the, the ultrasound. You can see it. Um, it's in kind of like a white um, fluid, and you can see it go right into the wow. uterus. And then they remove it. It's fairly quick. Okay. Um, they remove the catheter. Is and then pain? you um, Not anymore. I mean, the speculum obviously is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the painful part. I didn't have any, um, you know, cervical pain or, you know, feeling inside the uterus. And I didn't have to take any medication or anything before or after or during. Um, so it was bearable. But you're pretty tough. I'm pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then... Tough mutter. <laughs> and then you you have to, you know, lay still for about 10 minutes. And then um, I did another acupuncture session. And oh, then afterwards. it's two days of bed rest. When do you find out if, uh, if there's pregnancy? So you do blood work at 12 days after the transfer. Oh, that's a big 12 days. Yeah, and they really encourage you not to take home tests because you can... False positive, false negative. Yeah, in this in this instance, it's usually a false negative mm-hmm. um, versus the false positive because I think your HCG level has to be at like... 
above 200 to register on, on one of the test. home tests. But yeah. in your blood, you, you can see it at, you know, they, they want to see it at least 50 mm-hmm. at um, day 12. Uh, how did your day 12 go? So my day 12, I actually am, you know, I, I didn't follow directions. So, of course, you I did was the taking home, home tests. Oh. <laughs> and they were negative. Oh. Um, and then on day 12, I actually had a negative pregnancy test. A blood test. Yes. So it didn't take. So it didn't take the oh, first time. Oh, boy. Yes. That can't feel good. No, it it didn't. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um, it was, you know, of course it's devastating in the moment and you have your hopes up and you've gone through this whole long process. You invested and so much in so many ways. So much time and so much financially. And I, I was really positive about the experience and I was convinced it was going to work. It was like... For me, it just wasn't an option that I would have a negative test. So it kind of. And there's no more embryos. And there's no more embryos. So you have to match again? You do. If you want to do it again. If you want to do it again. You must have done it again because you have a kid in there. (laughs) Correct. For me, you know, it was. It was a minute of like, oh my goodness, can I do this again? And then, you know, literally the same day, I was like, of course I'm going to do this again. I didn't go through all of this to let it end here and I knew I wasn't done and I knew that this was something that I was you know meant to do um, and so I talked to the agency a couple of days later and said put me back in the matching phase and started again did you get pregnant with your first transfer for the second time? Yeah. Yes. Oh, congrats. yes, I did. Were you nervous during those twelve days? You must have been. I'm nervous right now for you before you I, said yes. So I, I was, but this time I felt different. And I'm again one of those lucky ones that at like day five after the transfer, which is probably upon implantation, I was nauseated. Oh, you can feel changes already. Yeah, and so then I had a positive home test. Ah, at, you did it at again. ten days. <laughs> at ten days. After. Uh-huh. And then at twelve, uh, then I went and confirmed. What was that moment one. like? It was, it was, it was awesome. It was really uh, exciting, and I was really happy. And um, it, you know, I'm I like almost tears of joy right now hearing yeah, you talk about it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love that you're such an open book. It's um, sometimes <laughs> you're just so curious about the things like this. Yeah, and you don't want to ask too many questions because, like, you don't want to step on anybody's toes or offend them. But yeah. you seem very hard to offend. So I'm pretty hard to offend, and I I feel like you know I feel like people's stories are so important, and I I want to be an open book about this too because if there are you know other people who are interested in building their family and didn't know about this kind of option or I never hear it talked about. Yeah, I had so. I had never heard, I, I don't personally know anybody Who's that done has it? done it um, before. Um, and and then actually learning about how it is a growing need that there are no a lot intended. of families that are looking for a growing other families. Need. Yeah, yeah. Um, have, have your family and friends been supportive? Oh my goodness, absolutely. I think if I had started this, you know, ten years ago, there might have been some more reservations, um, you know, or or there might have been more encouragement to wait a little bit longer, wait till I was a little bit older. Um, but but at 40, I, I haven't come across anybody who said, I don't think it's right for you or I don't think you should do it. Um, I do have, you know, a couple of friends that have been in seasons of their life in, in single motherhood. 
and have been very honest with me about, you know, that it's it's really hard and they wouldn't necessarily choose that. Um, but not to the extent where they have said, but I don't think you should. Uh-huh. Um, it, thankfully, because I, you know, went in choosing it, um, obviously I would I would prefer to do it with a partner. I'm not naive. I know that single motherhood is going to be difficult. I, I'm going to have to work and, you know, care for the child on my own as well. Hopefully I will be married at some point and then, you know, dad can join us. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, I I have an amazing community of friends. Um, I'm, you know, involved in church as well. And there's, I just have great support. And so ultimately I know it comes down to, to me and I don't have expectations, certain expectations of people. And I know they have their own lives and their own kids. But I have really been taken care of, um, you know, through the whole process already. And I, uh, my family couldn't be more excited. Um, it sounds like you have a village behind you. I do. And I think I don't think I could do it if I didn't have a village behind I think sometimes me. you have couples that don't have village behind them mm-hmm. that probably struggle. Absolutely. As a, as a doula, I've, I've seen that for yeah. sure. Because that's something that we talk about too. Who is your village? Who are you going to say yes to in post your postpartum period? Yeah. And so right now you don't have a partner, yeah. but you have a village, which is yeah. very important. And it's really a foundational. They say it takes a village. They don't say it takes a partner. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's the truth. That is true. Um, does it feel weird to be pregnant and still have your virginity? I mean, I remember <laughs> reading about that happening historically one time before. <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard about that guy. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, does it feel weird? I don't know any different. Um, I think the pregnancy part of it is probably not any different. Um I'm not concerned about a vaginal delivery. Um, my OB is awesome. I absolutely love my OB. And when I first told her, she was like, huh, I don't think I've actually delivered a, you know, a virgin. Um, is there a practical difference for birth? We don't think so. We'll okay. find out. Right, because it can't have happened that many times. I mean, up until recently, it just would yeah, never well, happen. And then honestly, it, one of the things my OB did say is she said, you know, there are plenty of people that have sex one time and get pregnant Mm -hmm. and then and let's be honest a penis is not anywhere near the size of a baby so i don't know how much that really prepares you and i've also had a lot of medical procedures at this point so i've had you know ultrasounds and speculums and so it's it's not likely that it will be a major issue well we can always have you back afterwards (laughs) i'd be happy to come back after (laughs) and tell you Or you you might meet your partner before then, and then it won't be an issue. Good. Anything could happen, right? (laughs) Things can change very quickly. How are you getting ready for birth? Um, Like, who's going to be there with you? Um, So I'll have a doula. um, And then my mom, who I mentioned has been at lots of births, she'll be amazing. She actually said... Well, do you still need a doula? You know, what can a doula do for you that I can't? (laughs) Well, no, she could fill that role. Yeah. But she's not a trained doula doula, in addition to her. In addition to her. I see. Um, And so as amazing as she'll be, she also hasn't been at her own daughter's birth. So I want her to be able to just be my mom as well. Um, and then, you know, with a, with a, with a doula, um, you know, they'll know 
when to do counter pressure and certain massage techniques and be able to set up the atmosphere and, and do all of those things that even though I know I'm clearly not going to be thinking about when it's me. Mm-hmm. So we I was just talking to Sarah Levon. Yeah. Um, on our episode about childbirth education. Yeah. About how partners are different than doulas mm-hmm. and they together make teamwork. And I yeah. think in your case, same thing. Mother different than doula. Your mother will be able to do things that your doula can't do. Yeah. And vice versa. So for you, they sound like different important pieces of your your puzzle. Yeah. And then I have, you know, it's not fully decided yet because then I have, you know, sisters and, you know, dear friend, one of my, you know, my, my closest friends who gave me injections every three days and mm-hmm. went to all my appointments with me. And, you know, so likely there'll be, there will be one or two other people there and probably a whole slew of people in the waiting room. <laughs> I, um, I have more questions for you that I can get to, but I do have one thought that I want to cover before we wrap it up here, which is, have you and the donor, not donor family, but the the what, placing family, the placing family. Yeah. Thank you. Have you and the placing family talked about what you will each tell the children? They have genetic siblings. Um, yeah. Do they have more than one? They have two. They have two boys. So they have two boys. Do you know what you're having? I'm having a boy. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's three genetic brothers. Right. Um, they have two. You'll have one. Yeah. Have Have you talked about what they'll tell their boys um, or if they know and what you'll tell your boy? Um, uh, that's a great question. So we haven't talked about what they will communicate to their children. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I mentioned in the matching phase, they place you with somebody who has similar, um, you know, interest in openness. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister has two open adoptions with, you know, two incredible, incredibly brave birth moms. Um, and I've seen what that looks like. So I'm very comfortable with openness. Um, I also think, and it's this is my personal opinion, but I also think it's really important for me to be honest and open with my child from the time that they're born about their, their birth story mm-hmm. and where they came from. And um, so the placing family, what they expressed that they wanted was annual updates through the agency. So until my son is 18, I'll send oh, wow. updates every year with photos and let them know how we're doing. Um, they don't have Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> they probably do. But in the beginning, they don't – I don't have their last names. Um, we don't have direct oh, communication. Oh, I see. It's through the agency. Now, at some point, they also said they're they're – open to more so at some point if we decide in childhood that we want the boys to all to be meet? able to meet oh yeah that everybody's kind of open wow, to that that's so interesting so we're going to play that by ear um but i'm 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 super open and i think it'll be important that um, is evident so that <laughs> <laughs> well i just think that i've heard so many stories about you know people that are blindsided when they're 10 or 16 or 18 or 33 and they hear that they were, you know, that their father isn't who they, their biological father isn't who they thought they were, or they were conceived by a donor or, you know, some sort of surprise. Um, We told our kids right away that I was their dad, so they wouldn't be let down (laughs) later in life. So I hear you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the agency really encourages you to be really open with them about their story. And then it, and I've watched this with my nephews too. It's just normal. It's just like, oh yeah, I have a birth mom and this is her name and 
but this is the family that I'm that I'm in. And you, you see them kind of process at different levels as they get a little bit older and they might ask more questions. Um, and so I just I'm remaining open, but I, I want to consider his wishes as well. Um, and then the other family, you know, so so I mentioned photos and updates yearly. And then once he reaches 18, um, then leave it up to him with what kind of openness he wants to have or communication with biological siblings or the donor family. Do you have more embryos? I do. So interestingly, they were having <laughs> trouble. So I, I said earlier they try to match you with, um, you know, a number of embryos that matches how many children you want to have. They were having trouble finding matches with a smaller number of embryos. So this family actually had nine Embryos. Oh, wow. And you used one. I have used one. Okay. So I have all of them, and they are frozen so that, you know, in two years I might say, okay, I want to do this again, and I could have a full biological sibling for my son. I'm going to get really nosy. Yeah. Did you pick gender? I didn't. That's one of their specifications is that even if they've done pre-genetic testing, they don't share those results because they don't want you to do gender selection oh, through this adoption And you were totally process. cool. I mean, you were cool with whatever. Yeah. So I, I left it more so to the embryologist to determine, you know, which looked the best quality. Oh, that's smart. Um, and we just transferred one and it and it worked on the Will you come back after? Sure. And and share how the process continued to go and is going? Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to. Of course. Um, Tell us again where we can find out online more about embryo adoption. Um, So the organization that I went through is called Snowflakes. um, And then there's the Embryo Donation um, Center. So both of those places have websites as well. Um, I don't know that it's snowflakes.com. It's actually a division of an organization called Nightlight okay. Adoption Agency. So you put a Nightlight, Snowflake, Embryo You'll Adoption, find it. you're definitely going to hit it. Um, <laughs> you will find it, yeah. Where can we find you online? Uh, my doula website is firstsightdoula.com, as in love at first sight. <laughs> as in you became a doula at first sight of childbirth. Exactly. See? <laughs> Uh, all right, Lynette, thank you so much for sharing oh, and for being wonderful. so open and um, fun and informative to talk to. Absolutely. We're definitely going to follow up with you. At home, thanks for listening. If you have a topic you want us to cover, just send your suggestion to info at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. 
A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.